2: Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes and my guest today is Susan Spindler, whose first novel, Surrogate, has just been published. Susan is an award-winning journalist and documentary filmmaker. She worked for the BBC on flagship series like Horizon, Tomorrow's World and QED, and later held senior roles in science editorial policy and drama. Welcome to Our Shell, Susan. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Hello. Very pleased to be here.
2: I'm so excited to be talking about this book, which I read um, uh, a couple of weeks ago in sort of one very tense sitting over the weekend. It's quite a thriller you've written here, but a very kind of interesting twist on I think um, what we might call the sort of domestic thriller that people have been interested in recent years. Uh, but it's not so much about a husband and wife, uh, though that is part of the storyline, but there's also central to the storyline is um the idea of mothers and daughters, I think. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit about the book to begin with before we get on to our main questions if I may Um, and I feel like this is something you're probably going to be asked in a variety of forms by a lot of people when talking about this but can you tell me a bit about this book's genesis and its conception how it came into being? Uh,
1: Right well I'd always been on a personal level interested in surrogacy. Uh, A number of people quite close to me had battled with either infertility or been told that they couldn't carry children and i had thought over the years having been lucky enough to have three of my own that if anyone ever asked me it was something that i would do very willingly because it, it seems something that changes other lives vastly for the better if you can provide them with something that that they think would be central to their experience um it it didn't happen in the end i wasn't asked and and but i did discuss it with my husband who had rather different ideas and and felt very cautious about it and i i think in retrospect i was i was generously naive in my assumptions uh, I'd also, as a science and, and medical documentary maker, uh, made programs about IVF, the, the biology, the ethics. Uh, so I had a, a, a background interest in that whole area. And I, I think I was drawn to mother daughter relationships, to ageing, and as a postmenopausal woman, just when I started writing. Uh, about about the experience of women across a lifetime before, during and after fertility. Um, and surrogacy in a postmenopausal woman was a useful lens to examine some of these topics that I was very interested in uh, and maybe shine a light on some of the things that we don't talk about very much.
2: Yeah, well, I was going to say, because one of the other things I think that's obviously very central to this um this story as well, is uh, the main character, the the post-menopausal woman, sort of coming to terms with the idea that she is no longer um, a fertile woman, that she's no longer a woman who gets sort of looked at in the street by men. She's sort of losing a sense of I think, uh, connection with her sort of, her, her, I suppose her sort of sexual self and also her sort of the, the mother that she was, right? And so there's a bit of her wanting to kind of reclaim that that gets very complicated within this family dynamic. Um, but I haven't, I was trying to think when I was reading it, that I haven't come across recently such a kind of interesting exploration of sort of postmenopausal female sexuality and like identity and what it really does to you. Menopause seems like something that we still don't really talk about a lot of. Um, would you agree?
1: Yes, I think we talk a lot about now about the perimenopause and the menopause in, in mechanical terms, mm. the symptoms, what you can do to alleviate them, um, what for example, workplaces or partners can do to be more sympathetic, more accommodating, um, to have more of a language around menopausal symptoms so that they're, 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 they're acceptable and we can solve any attendant problems. What I don't think we talk about very much at all is the zone afterwards. After the after the the, the, the medical bit, the, the pathological bit, uh, women then enter this enormous zone, decades long, um, and it's the space where they're going to spend the largest amount of their lives. So, you know, if you think in terms of girlhood, adolescence, the fertile period when women are menstruating, the, the turbulence of the menopause, that bit afterwards is is a huge piece of territory for living. And I think it's become associated with demise and dying. Mm. and Culture encourages us to uh, kind of polish ourselves up and impersonate fertile women. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, whether it's Botox, filler, hair color, um, certain kinds of exercise, we're all emulating women of my age, not yours. Uh, the the women with The women we've been uh, to to a greater or lesser extent, and and if we don't do that. Society talks about letting our, letting ourselves go, and 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 then and then that shades into vocabulary around witch and hag and harridan. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, a big challenge, and it's un, often unwritten territory, and unspoken territory.
2: Mm, absolutely, and also, if I may, I'm very curious that you said that you yourself were considering. Um, becoming a surrogate, if somebody had asked you sort of, you know, a while ago, perhaps. And I suppose I'd like to know, did doing the research for this book sort of make you, was that when you sort of sat up and sort of started to think that maybe there were more complications there than you had first imagined? Or was that something that you were already aware of? And that was what made you want to write
1: the book? Um, I think, Long after I myself thought, if someone asked, I would, and 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 I would probably push through any uh, concerns that people around me had in order to do it, because I thought that the the sort of the gift of a child for someone who really wanted one would would preempt those concerns. Um, long after that i found out that women particularly in the united states were doing it for their daughters and giving birth to their own grandchildren and writing about it talking about it on television um and i and i that began to fascinate me as a phenomenon and the complexity of it um and that was part of the genesis of of ruth and her situation um but but the the research when i did it told me that it's it's very complicated uh for an older woman it's it's dangerous i mean whether you have a baby for another woman or you have a, a transplanted embryo um for the purposes of having your own baby after the menopause unless your menopause is very early which of course it is for some women um the 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 risks multiply uh and uh ethically i think if if family relationships are very straightforward and boundaries are clear, then I think it can be a wonderful thing, the the mother-daughter surrogacy. I think if there's residual tension or friction, then it's possibly a recipe for disaster i just um, that makes me laugh slightly
2: because i try to think of any mother daughter relationship i know that hasn't got some kind of residual friction in it so it seems like um one is perhaps courting trouble in doing it but i can also understand how it, it, on one level it makes perfect sense right like if you can't have your own child you, you get somebody close to you another woman who is in the, your family and you trust to kind of and then it keeps it um it you know it's much less complicated perhaps than going elsewhere looking for a surrogate uh, but I also found I was very interested in this idea that um, that I think you explore so well in the novel this idea of sort of motherhood as as slightly as turning women into something slightly monstrous. and I don't necessarily mean that in a in a terrible way, but what I mean is that you're very good on the kind of intimate changes in these women's bodies and what what is changing, you know, and what isn't changing in the ones who aren't pregnant, but also this idea that they're sort of um, need to have a child sort of takes over them and they'll do anything you know your main character is you know she's told about the risks that will happen to her um, potentially if she if she does become a surrogate but she decides to do it anyway because as you're explaining she really wants to give this gift of a child to her daughter who can't Um, and I couldn't help but feel god I wouldn't do that in that position I wouldn't sort of um, give my body away and I feel like I'm really interested in 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 a sort of that desire to have a baby that is so overwhelming that women will do kind of incredible things to make that a reality
1: yes I mean I think the, the the march of the hormones is is fast and strong and unremitting yeah and, and I think for some women I, I I mean I've met women who are addicted to being pregnant um I talked to surrogates who who used the word addiction uh, wow. in, in relation to you know wanting to be a surrogate over and over again uh, and uh also the hormones that women are given during the course of IVF and in mm-hmm. preparation to receive an embryo for surrogacy, um uh, you know, take over their bodies. These are chemical coshes.
2: Yeah, I just think I, I think I'm very um I don't know, I'm very kind of drawn to that aspect of the of the narrative and that aspect of of sort of I, yeah, child bearing i think this idea that you are sort of no longer your own person to a certain degree hormones take over and you become this other being um i don't know anyway i feel like we could talk about this all day but i'm conscious that we have to get on to our other questions as well so uh, but hopefully readers who haven't yet had the chance re-surrogate will, will dig in and, and grapple with these these ideas themselves so first up on our questions uh, susan could you tell me about two books that are currently on your bedside table
1: Yes, all of my choices in some way are are spurred by the writing and the editing of the book where I've been wallowing in certain themes, and, and so so uh, you know there's there's more to come. So the the first book that I wanted to talk about was a book which revels, exalts in in the, the the female experience, and in particular in the experience of maternity but it is tremendously a novel in the body and it's called A Ghost in the Throat by Doreen Negrafer. It came out last year and it was given to me by a a friend who had read my novel and thought I would love it and indeed I, I did. I've never read anything quite like it. It's an amalgam of memoir, history, flight of fancy, dream sequence, uh, it's quite unflinching and and really uncompromising with the reader in that it it pursues several themes um, relentlessly um, in tandem. Uh, it, It charts the experience of a young woman who is mired in pregnancy, birth, close to death at times, motherhood, suckling her young. Um, And she loves it. And she describes to the reader her her deep sensory pleasure in birthing, holding, feeding, and and how she wants it never to end. And I don't think I've ever read such a powerful account of the physical reality of motherhood. And in a way, it's the central presence in the book, uh, or much of the book. Uh, And and it reminded me so much of my time uh, embedded in in young motherhood.
2: Wow, it sounds fascinating. Um, I haven't read it yet, but I will. It's kind of shot to the top of my list now. You've described it like that
1: to me. That's great. Um, it it what she what she evokes is the 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 huge joy of motherhood and the the chaos and, and claustrophobic drudgery of it, uh, the, the sort of mess, the repetitive clearing up, never being able to get on top of it, um, and the emotional heft of of being surrounded by young children, um, but but she's she's very good at holding holding the two, the joy and the difficulty, in in balance. Um, and, and she feels herself to be in a in a chain of female experience, uh, feeding in, deep into the night, being excruciatingly tired, um, and and she's conscious of her own invisibility, how how motherhood erases her, and and that that's a that suppression of her other self, which is mostly inexplicit, but but but. Underlies her her maternal experience is, is is then has a sort of objective correlative in in her obsession with a long Irish poem uh, composed by a, a noblewoman called Evelyn Duff uh, after the the murder the brutal murder of her husband, um, and uh, the the writer describes how. Evelyn Duff's life collides with her own and the poem leaks into her days and it becomes i think a metaphor for her own creativity.
2: Wow, what a fascinating book. I can also I, while you talk about it I can sort of understand why it must have been particularly kind of pertinent for you to read while editing your own novel or working on the end of it.
1: Yes, I mean she she you know she talks about her own entry into into fertility the the shock of of her first period, um, and the end of what she describes as girlish invisibility, and I suppose mm. so I suppose girlish invisibility is the other end of the female spectrum. You go from androgynous girlhood, and you tip up in, may, uh, arguably, androgynous postmenopausal female identity, with all the, the the sort of the hormonal turbulence we've talked about in between.
2: Yes, fantastic. Um, and what's the second book on your nightstand at the moment, please, Susan?
1: Yeah, so my, my second book is uh, The Secret Life of Dorothy Soames by Justine Cowan, which was published earlier this year. And I, I read for two reasons. Uh, my, my daughter, um, quite a while ago when she was at school, was in a, a, the chorus of a play at the National about um, uh, the Quorum uh, Foundation. So I knew Ah. a little bit about it. I visited it. What I didn't know was the the dark side of the foundation. Justin Cowan grew up in in California, in an ostensibly uh, comfortable, loving, middle-class household. Uh, Lawyer father, English mother. uh, She wanted for nothing. She had a good education. But as she says right at the beginning of the book, she didn't love her mother. And... Mm. We have to wonder whether her mother loved her uh, because they were, they were both, um, in the terms of the subtitle of the, the, the novel, they were foundlings, really. They were un, unmothered girls uh, because there was a, a cycle of deprivation, which was yeah. begun when her own mother, when Justine Cowan's mother was given up to the core of the foundation by, by her young mother, Uh, disgraced by pregnancy (laughs) out of wedlock um, and was brought up in a in a very cruel institution um, and never never quite understood or came to terms with what had happened to her she was reclaimed by her her birth mother at the age of 12 I think Um, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't seem to have gone well and when she moved to the states on her marriage she she invented a new identity in life for herself and her daughter was was a a sort of pawn in a in a strange game that she was playing with her own identity Uh, and I'm not sure that that the daughter Justine Cowan was ever real to her
2: Mm, mm. that's a really wonderful way that you put it um, because I think as listeners will know we had Justine on the um, podcast a few episodes back to discuss the book and I think like you I had a very similar experience I was quite aware of um, the foundling hospital of something but I think I in my head I had this idea that it was a sort of Dickensian institution that had not lasted into the 20th century so I was astonished to find that had still been going strong up until the 1950s and like you say the kind of horrendous stuff that had happened behind those you know behind closed doors, as it were. And the deprivation that then had this terrible impact on on Justine's family and, you know, on, on her growing up. And, you know, and this story was just heartbreaking. I mean, a really kind of incredibly moving memoir. And I found, I don't know if you agree, but I was very in awe of the way in which she um Justin was so honest about the troubles in that in her and her mother's relationship. She sort of didn't she didn't hide behind anything or try and make any excuses. She was completely and utterly honest about how Bad. Their relationship was,
1: wasn't she? I loved that honesty, and I also loved the reserve. And I read a review which s- suggested, "Oh, well, maybe, maybe it wasn't that bad. Why didn't she just have a con- <laughs> sit down and have a conversation with her mother?" But actually, those relationships are. I mean, none of us have perfect relationships with our daughters or our mothers. I suspect, as as you said earlier, and uh, um, I I think she she. Gave us enough in a dignified way to understand the the profound extent of her own deprivation uh, uh, about how she was manipulated like a like a puppet on a stage um, for the the sort of edification and aggrandizement of of her mother who was who was trying to build an identity on on very flimsy foundations um, and and i think she she clearly experienced her mother as unreliable unpredictable um unempathetic and uh, she shows huge understanding for her as the the story evolves and after her mother's death she finds out more about the circumstances terrible circumstances of her life um but but she's never going to feel close to her there won't be a happy ending and in a way the most touching aspect of the book was that it's dedicated to her husband and and she says at the end um uh, that that she thanks him for showing me that unconditional love really does exist I mean that's the that's the closest the book gets to a happy ending and I felt hugely pleased for her that that she'd found that kind of love but it's it's so impossible for her own mother to give to her
2: yeah yeah I think and you're so right that she doesn't um There are all these bits where you know as the reader, you're thinking, yeah why didn't you ask your mother these particular questions or why didn't you probe this particular angle but the more you read the book, you also understand that there was clearly that a complete lack of that communication available to them right that, that she couldn't have asked these questions she couldn't have possibly tried to bridge this divide because it was you know had been put down in stone long before she'd even come on the scene you know her mother was so badly disturbed and and sort of broken by her young experiences but I also love that idea of it being that yes the kind of husband and the life that she's built for herself is this is, that's the happy ending right the happy ending that we didn't know she was going to get yeah so. and there's
1: there's a there's a a very sad moment where her mother uh appears to be ready in middle age to look back at her past and maybe explore some some difficult um archives at, at the Coram Foundation. And she gets in touch with her daughter and says, why don't we take a sort of mother-daughter trip and have a look? By that time the the the, the wounds have have kind of scarred over and and the 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 Justine Cowan says you know she, she just couldn't do it um because she feels coldly towards her mother and her mother's dangerous to her. Uh, and and of course that wasn't possible. Um, And I think the the honesty in the telling of it, because I think it will resonate for many people. Very few uh, daughters will have will have had such scarring experiences, but I think many will 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 have had something in their lives which which this speaks to.
2: Oh, yes, absolutely. And I think that just on a very basic level, that idea of the stories that you can't possibly access sometimes that belong to your mother or, that you know, some kind of problem in your relationship that you can't quite get to the bottom of. And other people can always think they've got the right answer. Just talk to them about it. Just do that. But, you know, this, I think it will press on all those, um, all those things with the readers. I am beginning to see a nice, um, yeah, you're right. There's a nice theme to all your answers here. I've just realized in the next question as well, we're going to ask you, well, I'm asking you About a, um, you're going to talk about a particular essay that's made you think recently, and we're back to the theme of motherhood again, aren't we?
1: Yes. So my next choice is an essay in a book about experiences of women who who are regular swimmers in the Hampstead Ladies Pond. Um, It's it's a wonderful book, um, and I recently discovered it uh, because during lockdown. I started swimming um, at the the pond. No, and sadly, I'm too far away from the pond, but at Brockwell Lido, which is near me, and at the lake in Beckenham Place Park. Um, Oh, lovely. And it's been a bit of a lifesaver over the last year and a half uh, when I've been able to do it, which isn't always because of uh, closures. Um, But this is a book about... Uh, Hampstead Ladies' Pond, uh, and all of the essays are wonderful. My favourite is by Nell Fritzell. Um, She she was a regular swimmer at the pond for some years, but when she was eight weeks pregnant, she trained as a lifeguard and began to do 10 hour stints watching over the pond, often from a canoe, and she would be there ahead of time and after it closed, and sometimes during the night. Um, And it's a wonderful evocation of of the pond, which I have swum at and is beautiful. Um, uh, And the the, the sorority of swimming, which is something I've come to know again over the last year and a half. Um, Most of the swimmers where I go are women, and you see the same faces week in, week out. And there's an unforced cheeriness and mutuality about the whole enterprise, which I love. And Nelfritzel writes with a a kind of earthly lyricism, about the wildlife you know the giant swan mussel on the pond floor the, the the water snakes the the elderly carp which sometimes venture from the the depths um and and all of the female life that's there in a in a yes. kind of pageant um and it's you know these women are are literally and metaphorically naked they're, they're stripped down to their essences and she she sees them sad or joyful or scared or liberated um and and she also clears up the mess they leave behind them. You know, she's the one who cleans the <laughs> toilets and and collects. There's a wonderful bit where she's clean, she picks the underwear off the bushes um, after left left by nights of of passion. Um, and uh, so it's 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 secret. And there's a wonderful bit of writing at the at the very end about going into the pond at night when few others can go and and going into the depths and feeling like an astronaut. Uh, and and pervading it all is the sense of the baby growing inside her and I so Mm. loved her writing that I then um bought her, her her book which was published a few months ago called The Panic Years about her her longing for children and and then getting both a partner and a child in quick succession and and juggling and she's she's very funny and and she writes with great honesty and wit and empathy and uh, and i suppose this this book and that essay ser- will serve as a reminder of lockdown and how how grounding swimming particularly in cold water has been paradoxically uh, it, in, in sort of keeping me sane Oh, that's so lovely to hear. I love the Hampstead Ponds. I mean, I haven't been for a
2: while because of lockdown and I'm certainly not as keen a swimmer as some of the rest of you. But there is something, the sort of the sorority there, the feeling that you're with all these other women and you know you go with with your friends but also you sort of see the same faces there like you mentioned um and I think that essay in particular in in this collection um at the pond swimming at the Hampstead Ladies Pond um you're right that it wasn't just I think the thing that spoke to me about it as well when I read it was that it wasn't just a story about An individual relationship to the pond. I loved the fact that she was sort of sat there through the seasons watching the other people and not just the people, but watching the wildlife. So like you say, there's this great sense or I have this great sense of her sort of sitting quite quietly and calmly, the baby growing inside her, watching life going on around her and sort of being part of the natural world. yeah very very evocative a kind of beautiful image and definitely a kind of encouragement for people to go and do some swimming at the ponds the first chance they get. I think swimming has opened up again now hasn't it? Have you been back oh, at the lido? Yeah. Already? Yes,
1: I've been back at the lido uh, three or four times now and it's it's magical. I feel oh, yeah. every time I go I feel I've been rebooted like a kind of recalcitrant computer
2: that's a lovely way of putting it and like even would you get because now it's got a bit cold again will you still keep swimming even though the temperatures dropped or yeah
1: in fact the Easter Monday back back in East on Easter Monday it was snowing as we as we changed back into our clothes afterwards wow um, that's
2: that's very very clear that's very keen I'm always impressed by the people who do this sort of swimming at the ponds through uh throughout the year I have a couple of friends who do that and there's a wonderful last time I was there there was a beautiful photograph I think of um it must be from the 1920s or something and it's women who are divesting themselves of their fur coats to then go for a dip yeah yeah it's really beautiful it was on the wall and I think it was only sort of chopped out of a magazine or something but it's a beautiful beautiful image so and very very evocative
1: yes and I think you you see women of all ages as well and Uh, yes uh there's a there's a sense of being being on a continuum
2: yeah you're right actually that's one thing you do notice you everyone from the youngest the the kind of i don't know whatever age they start letting you swim around about 12ish when you can swim a lap you know mm. by yourself right up through to women you know who are quite old and have been swimming there for years and years and they do their very sedate swimming around the i mean it, yeah it's a beautiful kind of slice of female life uh in north london our shells be back in just a moment Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes and I'm talking to Susan Spindler about the joys of wild swimming, particularly in Hampstead Ponds, uh, the Ladies Pond and uh, the Brockwell Lido. Uh, Next up, Susan, could you tell me about a book that has made you think
1: about feminism in a new way, please? Um, Yeah, this is... uh kind of nostalgia in the sense that it it was it's a book that was part of my life when I was quite a young woman um it's a book called Our Bodies Ourselves which came out in the UK I think in 1978 in a, a penguin edition I had recently left university and in I I can't remember exactly when I bought it, but it, but I, it, it was very important to me over the next, I would say, five years, bet- between graduating and then marrying much earlier than my peer group and having a baby much earlier than my peer group, and it, it, it was a sort of crutch for me, and it introduced me to lots of ideas uh, and and approaches to life um, that that I'd been unaware of. So it as a book, I think it came out of feminist consciousness raising in the mid 60s, the availability Mm. of the contraceptive pill and the sexual liberation movement uh, and and also the underground abortion movement in the US. um, Yeah. uh, And. It specifically was started at a workshop on women and their bodies in Boston in 1969, where frustration was expressed among the the women participating about how little they knew about how their bodies worked. Um, uh, One of them recording uh, what it was like at that time, she said, our genitals were down there and we didn't talk about them. Um, Most educational material was written by men and women were referred to in the third person. And this group of women decided that they wanted to reclaim their bodies. They wanted the shift to our bodies, ourselves. Mm. And they produced a pamphlet in 1970 and then a book in 1973. And it was described initially as an encyclopedia of information on anatomy and sexual pleasure. And, And it said, to readers, you are your body, and you are not obscene. And it was a, a, a groundbreaking mixture of practical information and personal stories. Uh, and it's important to, to remember this is well, well before the internet, so mm. it was it was hard to find this information, uh, and um, it was it was. Very detailed practical information about anatomy, physiology, sex, sexual pleasure, contraception, abortion, pregnancy, childbirth, um, and invaluable advice later for me on dealing with motherhood um, and and all sorts of stuff that people didn't talk about uh, or people I knew didn't talk about, you know, what to do when you got cystitis that paralyzed your life, um, what, how you could, how you could try and prevent it, how you could treat it, you know, what, what to do about sexually transmitted diseases, how your body would change in pregnancy, different varieties of orgasms. And before my first child was born, I used to pore over it, um, uh, you know, trying to decipher my, my symptoms and I remember the night before my son was born you know reading it and thinking is this indigestion following chili con carne or or is it first stage labor and it had sections on violence, which mercifully I didn't need. Um, it had a, and again, this is rare at the time in mainstream publishing, a very nuanced and balanced section on on lesbian perspectives. Um, mm. A chapter at the end about menopause, which I never read because I thought I was immortal. Um, <laughs> but but uh, I was. Do you, at, you remember how you first came across it? I think in a bookshop. It was, okay. it was, it was, it was a very fat, I mean, hundreds of pages. I've got, I've got not my edition, which fell apart, uh, but it, I mean, it's 600 pages. This is the the, the next edition. Um, and I saw it in a bookshop and the, the edition I bought was covered in the faces of women, you know, uh, different color skins, different appearances, different hair, different head coverings. Uh, it looked sort of multi ethnic multinational international um and and it advertised itself as a book about female bodies and I'd never seen anything like it uh I I wasn't part of a feminist collective I was living in the Thames Valley having graduated from a university a long way away and didn't didn't have any close female friends living nearby and was going through all of those rites of passage you know marriage Motherhood, um, child, child re- rearing, uh, pregnancy, birth, and it—it it was a friend and and companion, and it and it helped get me through, and I I think it also politicized me. I became I became suddenly self interestedly. Obsessed with the balance of domestic labour, with with childcare, with whether whether I was going to be able to work again at a time in the this was now the early 80s when um, a lot of women didn't return, still didn't return to work after having children, and mm. provision for part-time work and childcare was very poor.
2: You say that um, at the time you weren't uh, you weren't sort of surrounded by a lot of close female friends. So presumably you weren't reading it while other people you knew were reading it. But was it something that you spoke to um, peers about later on in life when you had when you sort of went back to work or when you, you know, I don't know, was it something that people discussed and other people had had a similar experience? Or did you feel that it had spoken very much to you personally in that moment?
1: I spoke about it afterwards uh, when I got to to know other other women who were having the same experiences better. But uh, mm. because I was pregnant at 24, most of the women I met through my NCT classes were considerably older than me and had very different attitudes. And I, I remember on the basis of reading it and the, the bibliography, trying at an early NCT meeting after my son was born to try and get everyone to read polemics about nursery provision and and fathers taking a 50% share and and you know presenting how did that go down presenting (laughs) some books and being being just stared at in incomprehension um but later you know I had friends who who loved it and had used it um and it in 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 those times before you could just go online and find out everything you needed to know Mm. it was the it was the most wonderful compendium
2: Yeah, I can well imagine. I'm also very glad that someone has mentioned it. It's the first mention we've had of it on the podcast, I think, as a book. But um, as has been pointed out, I think very a few people recently, obviously, our, uh, the title of the podcast itself, Our Shelves, is a, is a sly nod to this uh, very famous book, Our Bodies, Ourselves. So it's about time somebody brought it up. So thank you very much, Susan, for that. Um, and finally, our last question today uh, is, uh, could you tell me about a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender who you admire and why?
1: I've chosen someone called Patience Gray, um, mm. and I, I don't know whether you've um, read any of any of her work or anything about her, Lucy, but I'm keen on cooking myself and, and do a lot of it, and I discovered her as a, as a recipe book writer. She wrote um, the best-selling cookbook of the 50s, uh, the 1950s, a book called Plats du Jour, um, and much later, towards the end of her life, she wrote Honey from a Weed, which has become a classic, which I read soon after it came out um, because I slightly knew the publisher. Um, and it's a wonderful book about really subsistence living and eating and fasting and feasting in um, peasant communities. Uh, in different parts of Europe. No, I was just thinking, it's such a fascinating
2: book. And it's not, I, I personally am a terrible, terrible cook. So it is not one that I've read myself. But I think um, I d- only know about her via Rachel Cook writing about her in her um, sort of group biography about uh, her brilliant career, 10 Extraordinary Women. And I think that was the first time I came across Patience. So this is, I'm very interested to hear you
1: talking about her today. Yes, I mean, that that chapter... Uh, by rachel cook is, is actually i think in some ways more more incisive and insightful than than the the quite long biography that that came out <laughs> that came out which it which is which is extremely detailed and and, mm. and i think i think pa- patience grey Im- emerges more more clearly and strongly from from uh, the, the the chapter in in the book about other brilliant careers um she she had, I mean, one of the reasons I'm interested in her, she had the most fabulous second act. Uh, she had a very interesting first act in which she beat a thousand other people to become the first women's editor of The Observer, uh, a job that that she found perplexing because I think she couldn't quite get to grips with the chaps. She said they were all old Etonians and, uh, and the proprietor thought part of her function was to buy birthday presents for his wife. Um, but. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know she worked for the festival of britain she worked as a textile designer a journalist she she had a a, a huge knowledge of um uh mushrooms um and a great in, a developed interest in in botany uh, but then she when her children were i think 16 or 17, 17 or 18 years old she met a flemish sculptor uh and uh left britain to travel with him in search of marble uh across europe and and lived extremely simply uh eschewing most of the comforts of life which she was quite haughty about anyway and always had been um and uh, wrote wrote this wonderfully scholarly uh uh cookbook and and then became very famous in her old age and was interviewed by by cooks and uh, journalists and writers from all over the world.
2: Mm. She's such a wonderful person I think to kind of look up to and like you say that fascinating second um, sort of second act the second career as it were and also the sense I had from and I'm not an expert at all so you correct me if I'm wrong but the sense I very much had from reading that chapter in um, Rachel Cook's wonderful book was just also as a woman who sort of she didn't she didn't seem to really care what other people thought as well she would do things because she wanted to do them and she was always sort of branching out and and deciding to make she wasn't making her decisions based on what women should be doing
1: at the time she was making decisions based on what she wanted Um, and I loved that about her uh, in, indeed uh she and she was uncompromising she had some firm principles which she always adhered to um i mean she truly believed that that you couldn't really feast properly unless you unless you'd fasted and that and that plenty year round plenty was a disadvantage and uh living with the sea lit seasons and working through the seasons was was a fundamental part of being human uh, but her the the recipes are wonderful I was going to say, do you actually, have you cooked from her oh, recipes? Are they are they great to oh, use? They're, they're fantastic. I mean, if you, okay. and I also, I also grow a lot of, in normal years, I grow a lot of vegetables and, and, and it's a great pleasure cooking from them. And in France, where, where the markets tend to be better and the food fresher, I, I, I've cooked a lot um, from honey from a weed. Well, maybe I
2: should uh, try and give it a go myself. It might improve my culinary skills, which um, you definitely need it, unfortunately. (laughs) Thank you so much um, for coming on the show, Susan. It's been a real pleasure to hear all your wonderful recommendations today.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's been a joy.
2: Thank you very much for listening. Our show is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Susan Spindler. And tune in next time for more conversations about books, feminism and culture.